So welcome to Focus on the Founder. This is your host, Alan Miller from Matrix Partners. We're very excited to be joined by Ashley Johnson, the COO and CFO of Wealthfront. Welcome, Ashley. Thanks for having me. So Ashley, you've, um, you've had this incredible career kind of on both sides of the table, both as an investor uh, as well as sort of an operator. But let's, let's start with your investing career because that's kind of where you, where you started. The first part of your career was, was spent you know, as an investor at Morgan Stanley and then at General Atlantic where you sourced a number of investments, you know, companies like Service Source uh, and Renren in, over in China, and both of which are both publicly traded companies at this point. What were you, as an investor, you know, taking you back to that point, what were you looking for in entrepreneurs that you were excited about or, or in companies that you were looking to invest in? And did anything in particular stand, up, stand out about those two companies, Service Source mm-hmm. uh, and Renren, um, that kind of compelled you at, at GA to, to make the investment? Sure. Um, I'd say first and foremost, um, and this was a philosophy of General Atlantic that, that I really believed in, was I was looking for a passionate founder. So um, wanted leadership that was truly invested in the success of the company and very passionate about what they were building. And I definitely saw that in Mike Smirklow at Service Source. Um, he wasn't technically the founder of the company, but he really grew it from a very, very early stage through you know taking it public and, and beyond. Um, and Ren Ren, anybody who's met Joe Chen knows that he's an extremely passionate founder. Um, so that was one thing that was really important to me when I was when I was evaluating companies. From then, General Atlantic was a later stage investor, so product market fit was really important. Understanding that there is a very big market, and you've already proven that there's demand for for the product that you're taking to market. Third. From my lens, a defensible business model, and and with that, I really was looking for high gross margins, because if you have high gross margins, then you have a a lot left over that you can use to invest in growing the business, investing in R&D, creating that competitive moat, and and really attacking the market. And finally, as a growth stage investor, I wanted a a company that we could provide capital that would make a difference in, in the business. So in the case of Service Source, they had great product market fit. They had some great early customers that had expanded the contracts with the company dramatically, but they hadn't built out a sales force yet to really scale the business. And so General Atlantic was able to invest and partner with them to help build out a sales team. Um, Ren Ren had a number of small businesses and really in their portfolio approach in, in mobile applications in, in China, was looking for other ways, other business lines that they could expand and wanted growth capital to be able to acquire some of those businesses. So those were really the key elements that I was looking for and certainly found in both of those investments. And I'd say even now I'm not investing other people's money, but I'm investing my own career. I look for the same things in the company companies that I'm joining. And that was what was exciting to me about Wealthfront. Yeah, absolutely. And then just to tease out one thing you mentioned around kind of what you guys were doing at GA in terms of how you kind of um, saw areas where you could find value and actually support the company. What would you say if, if you were looking at ServiceNow or Ren Ren? what were the areas that you think they really appreciated in terms of beyond the capital, but, you know, value-added services or um, whether it was content or knowledge that you provided um, or connecting them maybe to other portfolio companies at GA? What were the areas that you thought that, hey, you know, at GA, we really moved the needle in this area and, and it was really impactful? Sure. Um, with Service Source, um, we actually helped bring um, some valuable members to the board, and in particular, a man by the name of Jim Madden, who'd built out a similar services business from that stage and, and understood the challenges of growing the sales force and the challenges of building a scalable mo- model, 
predicated on these really large contracts and, and how to really diversify the business to reduce some of the lumpiness. So I'd say one of the things that we really brought was was just strategic value in the network and people who'd been through this before and, and a partner for the founder um, or for the CEO and in, in how to think about scaling the business. And then ultimately making a, a big play in, in technology and, and bringing a lot of other either entrepreneurs or um, executives who had built out a technology infrastructure for a traditionally non-technology business. So um, E-Trade was a company where a number of the partners had been involved with and, and understood that transition. So that for service source, what I would say, if, you know, Mike would be the right person to ask if I'm correct, but was really the value that General Atlantic was able to bring. With Renren, I was involved early early on with the company, and, and then other partners over in China really took over from there. Um, but one of the things that I saw that we were able to bring was thinking about where the points of risk were in the in the financial model and in um, just in the business overall. So there were some areas where the gross margins were predicated on an arbitrage play that we had seen already play out in the U.S. as not a sustainable play. So really looking to inject new lines of business so that when the, that advertising arbitrage was no longer available, they'd have other sources of revenue. And then also from a regulatory perspective, our network helped us to understand that China had a history of deciding to crack down on licenses. And so one of the first things that we required that they do was go and make sure all of their licenses were current with the different ministries within China. And sure enough, six months later, anybody who didn't wasn't appropriately registered was shut down by the government. So um, that enabled Renren to be, you know, one of the surviving players in a, in a time where, you know, the, the landscape changed overnight. Yeah, certainly one of the areas where government regulation can really make a difference. Right. FinTech and obviously in China. So um, I guess maybe shifting gears to your sort of operating career. So you then end up investing in service source and you end up actually joining um, one of your portfolio companies, and you, you kind of had a long period of time there, but eventually was sort of in a CFO, uh, C, CCO role, you know, before joining Wellfront. And then in his blog post introducing you, Adam Nash kind of referred to you as kind of the, a different type of CFO, but sort of the perfect person for Wellfront. So can you talk about, a little bit about the transition going from being an investor to an operator and kind of why you made the transition, and maybe a little bit around the mindset shift that you may or may not have had to take to really succeed both in the role that you're in now, but also the previous role at at, um, at Service Source. Sure, I'd say the biggest difference is it's it's kind of like going from being an individual sport player to being a team sport player, um, where it's not just about how well you how how well you are able to operate, but how well you operate in an in an overall organism, so a, a team. The interdependencies within a company just look radically different than in an investment firm, where it's it's really about how you know your investments play out rather than you know how you are able to create the appropriate interdependencies across the organization. So, a great example that I like to give is when I when I joined, I, I had this team I was inheriting, and everyone had, they kind of told me that there was this one person on the team that really shouldn't be there anymore. Um, but you know they were so stretched for resources, they didn't want to get rid of him. And so I decided this would be a great opportunity for me to make a point to my colleagues and to my team that, you know, I don't tolerate B players. I'm going to go in. I'm just going to remove this person, um, bring in and somebody who is going to be an A player and um, just demonstrate that that's the kind of operator that I am. 
And so that's what I that's what I did and brought in somebody who was excellent and put her in charge of his prior responsibilities, which was calculating the comp for the sales force. How hard could that be? Well, it turned out that there were some intricacies in the models and some things that we didn't fully transition over well. So the first set of comp calculations that went out to the sales force were totally wrong. And I don't know how many salespeople you know, but they don't really like to get incorrect comp calculations. <laughs> they live and die by them. So it was a Saturday morning when my phone's lighting up, I'm chewed out by the SVP of sales and then subsequently chewed out by the VP of sales. And then, you know, I just stopped taking the calls from there and sent out an email retracting the calculation, pulling everything back. And, and we spent the weekend getting it right. But it was kind of this realization that I was no longer operating in a vacuum and that, you know, how well we did and, and mistakes we made had much broader implications. So I'd say that was my, my first foray into understanding how different the world was that I was in. I'd say the biggest impact or, or shift that I made was with, with that group was they had largely been the place where people came to get their Excel calculated. What's my budget? Can you run this analysis for me? Um, as opposed to a group that was really thinking ahead as to what's going on with the business and what insights can I bring out to the field? And so over the course of the time there, we really radically transformed that team and, and all of that team have gone on to subsequently be, become great finance professionals. And I'd say, you know, they really view themselves as enablers to the organizations, you know, the place where people come to help make strategic business decisions as opposed to the budget holders. And it's that mindset that I definitely brought to Wealthfront and wanted to make sure as we grew finance function within Wealthfront that people view us as the place you come to have a thought partner about business decisions and what are the financial implications and also the people who will come with insights that that they might otherwise not see yeah it's it's, it's a really great story thanks for sharing that so then you know you, you joined wellfront in in 2015 you know right when the company kind of achieved some scale about a billion in aum coming in to this role both the cfo role and the ceo role what were your sort of um, immediate priorities, let's say, in the first six months? Yeah, so the company was going through a lot of change. So it grown very quickly in terms of AUM, um, doubled in headcount that year. The prior CFO was the jack of all trades. So as a one-man band, he did finance, accounting, IT, HR, pretty much everything. He was the one-man legal department. So it was one big shoes to fill because everybody came to him for everything. Yeah. Um, but two, I needed to build a team because that was that was not a sustainable model, especially given the hyper growth that we were experiencing. So my first order of priority was to build out a team so that we could actually just continue to operate. Um, and then second order of priority was the company had raised a ton of capital the year prior. So a hundred million dollars. Most of it was still on the balance sheet. And so our goal was to turn our balance sheet into a strategic asset for the business and really think about how we were allocating um, the funds, how long we wanted it to, to last until our next round of funding, really getting the business to think about ROI before making investments, whether those investments were in product marketing or other areas. And I'd say that that viewpoint of the balance sheet being a strategic asset is something that served us well um, over our subsequent growth period. I want to just double click a little bit on the team part. You said that one of the, obviously the big priorities going in was to hire your team. How did you go about doing that? I mean, you, you probably had some brand credibility with sort of potential um, candidates, but how did you actually go about finding the kind of first layer kind of beneath you within your own team? 
So it was great at Wealthfront because we actually have a recruiting team, which is not something that I had necessarily had um, access to previously. Our recruiting team at Service Source was really focused on recruiting the, um, the, the sales engine. So um, I was partnered up with a really strong recruiter. Wealthfront is a very mission-oriented firm. And so the very first screening for applicants is how much they believe in what we're building and why we're building it. Um, and everyone you meet from Wealthfront really carries that strong mission first mentality. So the recruiter really trained me in, you know, this is the, the first way that we screen. And then obviously Wealthfront does have a pretty large fan base out there. So the director of finance that I ended up hiring was actually somebody who applied because he'd been watching the website for years, trying to, waiting for the right post to, uh, the right position to be posted so that he could apply. And we, we picked him out of the stack and, and through the recruiting process brought him on board. He actually moved his family out from Dallas. He was so passionate about the business. So, um, and a lot of our team that, that we've built out on the finance and operations side has been like that. They're people who've been watching the website, position gets posted, they apply, um, and we find them from the stack because their passion for the mission really shines through in those very first phone calls. So all of the finance team that I've built out subsequently, that's that's how we found them. And then, so, you know, we go back to the sort of discussion around sort of hyper growth, right? The company's in hyper growth, um, you, you need to hire, but you also want to balance this very unique culture that you guys have at Wealthfront, this very mission-driven so how do you, how do you make that trade off right? You need people, you need bodies, you right. need people in seats, but you also want to maintain the integrity of the culture. So how did you go about doing that balance? Yeah, so obviously in Silicon Valley, hiring engineers is one of the hardest things that companies have to do, and and we are very much a product oriented company, and so maintaining a very high talent bar in engineering is important. So we can't just hire bodies with engineering degrees. We need to hire really talented engineers that you know meet the the quality bar that our engineers are looking for and then also have that passion for the mission which just makes it that much harder for for wealthfront especially in a competitive market like silicon valley so we treat recruiting as a strategic function and invest in building out a, a team of sourcers that can go and, and help us to to find those candidates in terms of maintaining a culture when you are adding headcount as rapidly as we are. One of the things that Andy Ratcliffe, our CEO, did when he came back, he was the founder of the, of the company and came back as CEO last October, is he instituted a set of operating principles. Um, so think of corporate values that tell you how we expect you to show up every day. And we train everybody who joins on, on these operating principles. So, you know, one, you're joining and you already are bought into the mission. And now we're telling you, okay, as you show up, this is the set of behaviors that we expect. And, the, and they're pretty simple. So one is we're trying to move very fast. So we need everyone here to show urgency. Two, in order to move fast, we need to make decisions. So that needs to be your mindset, um, you know, especially with talented engineers and others, perfect can definitely be the, the enemy of good. So we want to get people into the, the mindset of, you can weigh all the options, but ultimately with the goal of making decisions. Three is disagree, but commit. So let's have the debate. Let's bring the, the differing viewpoints. But once we've made this decision, let's all commit behind it. Four would be 
um, in order to create a place where disagreement can happen, um, but still in, towards achieving a goal, we tell everyone, show respect. So when you're disagreeing, be respectful in, in how you disagree. And then fine, assume best intent. So when someone's disagreeing with you, don't assume that they're doing it because they've got malicious intent. They've got good intent. They've got a viewpoint that they're trying to bring forward in, in the goal of advancing the company. And so if you're assuming best intent of that person, then it's much easier to you know show respect, get through that disagreement, and ultimately drive towards decision and maintain that urgent environment. So having those as the operating principles principles and then evaluating in every performance review cycle against those operating principles allows us to grow quickly and maintain a high talent bar and also a really strong culture of moving the company forward quickly against this really strong mission that we all have. Cool. So um, thanks for the description of wealth, and I think uh, that all makes sense. So why don't we talk a little bit broadly about sort of wealth management investing. So, you know, we talked about this at the Empire FinTech conference and everyone's talking about this, right? It's Vanguard and Schwab are entering um, and other incumbents. And yet, you know, you guys are still have the strong mission. So, and then the other other aspect of this whole thing is, you know, customer acquisition costs. Everyone's mm-hmm. talking about how it's going up and it's really, really challenging. So how does Wealthfront continue to differentiate in this environment where the incumbents are getting a little bit more sophisticated and are entering the market? Um, and how do you think through customer acquisition costs? First and foremost, I just have to say, from our lens, this is not a pay, paid marketing game. We're in we're in the business of building trust and building great products, and we do not believe that that the key to growth is the paid marketing game. Because if, for exactly the reason you said, we can always be outspent by the incumbents. They're charging four times the fee that we're charging, and so if we're looking for a two-year payback on our customer acquisition cost. They can spend four times as much and still achieve that. So we definitely have to take a smarter approach around our customer acquisition strategy. Secondly, millennials hate the incumbent brands. So the incumbents are the ones that charge them the bounce check fees when they were just getting out of college and trying to make ends meet on that expensive apartment in New York City, right? These are the brands that have inherent conflict of interest that are you know, creating a robo-advisor that advises them to go into you know, ETFs where those are the products of, of the firm with the, with the advisor. Right? These are the ones that are telling them to maintain high cash balances, even though they're earlier in, early in their career with a long-term investment horizon. Right? Um, you know, classic example is one of the incumbents is no longer offering Vanguard products because they don't pay, pay the 12B1 fees, right? And those types of inherent conflict of interest, those types of nickel and dime fees that really hurt them when, they're, when they were young make the incumbents really not like the incumbent brands. So they can rebrand themselves, they can put catchy names on it, they still are the incumbent brands. Our approach is build great products so that the word of mouth messaging continues. The majority of our clients, vast majority of our clients come in through organic and word of mouth. So the paid marketing that we do spend is very targeted, very high ROI spend. Um, And like I said, we're we're looking for a customer acquisition cost that's paid back within two years. And we're not spreading that paid marketing over 100% of our acquired clients. It's just those that come in through the paid strategies. So that may, that requires us to be very judicious in how we're spending. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's helpful. The next question is a bit more of a product question for you then. You know, what we've observed here at Matrix is over the years in fintech, 
um, is a real sort of unbundling of the bank, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about the traditional bank, everything from sort of lending to payments to investing, right, and wealth management, all of this has sort of been unbundled and, and fintechs are really going after each kind of segment of the bank. But at the same time, as some of the some of the sort of players get to scale, you know, think of like Wealthfront, right? Um, you guys now have sufficient scale. Do you imagine that where it makes sense from a product perspective where you might actually try to start bundling some of these things back together? For example, where it makes sense, right? For example, if you're doing a passive investing product, do you see a future where you start providing like an active investing product to certain subsegments of your customers? So doing things that might just sort of naturally make sense rather than having two or three accounts in multiple locations happening in one place mm-hmm. and sort of bundling back together. Is that sort of in the future? Is it sort of, and if so, is it sort of a distant future or, or more closer than we think? I'd say we'd think about it a little differently than what you just described, but at some level, we're really already doing that. So um, financial planning right now is the center of everything that we do through our financial planning application called PATH. Um, And from that is built out all the other products that we have. So our investment advisory product for taxable accounts and non-taxable accounts, Um, our 529 plans as as, um, young families are thinking about their children's future um, college expenses. Um, We have a lending product so that people can borrow against the assets that are invested um, for short-term spending needs. Um, and I think you can expect that we're going to continue to build out different products, whether those are new investment products. I doubt you'll see us do active management in the more traditional sense, um, but we have a passive plus strategy where we're taking passive investment strategies and really adding new features on top of them, like our factor tilting strategy that we launched last year. And as we continue to build out new features, investment strategies, and um, financial services like you know what would be a, viewed as a traditional banking service and lending that we've built on top of the platform. That's the that's the strategy that we're taking, and that's what you can expect to see from us. So at some level, yes, it is a rebundling, but it is really around the center of providing solid financial advice, and then the products that it, it enable you to execute against that advice. Yeah, totally. And then the other hot topic right now, obviously in, in today's world, is is cryptocurrencies, right? So I don't know if you have a perspective and would be curious to hear your perspective, but also just would love to know if Wellfront sees a future where you include some exposure to crypto in sort of the overall investment bundle and what that would look like. So our CIO, Bert Malkiel, has some pretty strong opinions about um, the cryptocurrency market and usually starts off by talking about tulips. So that gives you kind of a sense of um, our perspective on the market today. Look, a lot of our clients are invested in cryptocurrencies already, and they consider them part of their their financial portfolio. And so us understanding how that fits into their portfolio is something that will continue to grow and evolve through our research team. But incorporating that into our portfolio is not something that I certainly would expect to see in the short term. Um, they could always do it through Coinbase. <laughs> uh, okay, so then just, uh, again, shifting gears a little bit, so you wrote a fortune piece kind of right when you started at, at Wealthfront where you kind of addressed the fact that, you know, women are, are less likely to save than men. Um, and then you specifically pointed to kind of the 18 to, to 33 cohort, which are millennials, as we discussed before, um, and looking at the median 401k balance. And you notice that it's, it's twice as large for men as is to, for women. So other than the obvious sort of median income differences, um, what else do you think? Is there something that's sort of fundamental in the behavior between the two genders that's sort of driving this delta? And has, has Wellfront taken any sort of action to kind of 
address this this challenge? Sure. Um, I, I will say, especially since I'm surrounded by researchers at work, that my response is anecdotal, not based on any kind of um, market research that we've performed. But from my lens and from the speaking that I've done around Silicon Valley to different women's group, there's both an awareness problem, there's a bit of a um, confidence gap. So where women who, you often hear about um, women not applying for jobs because they can't check all the boxes. I, I do see a little bit of this reluctance to invest because I haven't done enough work to feel confident in doing so. And then also when you look at the messaging that's out there in the traditional industry, it's very patronizing. So trust us, this is really hard. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. We'll take care of it for you. And it's not surprising to me that women just choose to stay, stay away. And so what have we done? One, we've done a, a dramatic messaging overhaul with a goal to be much more all-inclusive in our messaging and to take the patronizing talk out. So it's much more relatable, much more oriented toward um, the goals that, that women and men are trying to achieve with their, with their lives um, and in their, with their finances. And really trying to make it easy so anybody can do this, um, relatable, approachable, um, and uh, right there at your fingertips. So I think through the brand overhaul that we did and the focus on PATH, which is a very simple application to use, I think we can overcome the confidence gap. And the, the metaphor that I've used in the past is, you know, women and men had a very different approach to directions once upon a time, or at least, you know, that was the stereotype. Men just wanted to figure it out and women wanted to ask directions and have maps and have it all mapped out. Um, and I'd say both women and men probably pretty equally rely on Google Maps these days. So um, if we can be a financial application that is that easy to use, brings an extra um, information that you can't really find on your own and by, by linking in all of your, your financial institutions and, and generating insights on your spending patterns, your saving patterns and your investing patterns, then I think women and men alike will, will end up using an application like this rather than trying to, to figure it out on their own or um, uh, spend a lot of time uh, doing, it, doing it manually. Cool. Well, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for taking the time and, and good luck with everything at Wellfront. Great. Thank you so much. Ah!